Today, we're bringing you a really special episode of the Altered Life Podcast, where we tackle head-on this topic of higher education, as your host, Michael Castanon, interviews one of the founders of the newly formed Hildegard College, Dr. Matthew Smith, and one of Hildegard's first students, Nicole Parker. Hildegard's promise is that they educate young people to be intelligent, wise, and entrepreneurial. Our model is a different kind of model, so we're not just another college. We think that universities really need a reset. But is this a tall order for Gen Z? A generation that grew up having to develop in a world of counterfeit connection online and through social media? Can a small liberal arts college really break through these barriers? And how does a new generation embrace higher education when large public figures like Elon Musk preach an antithetical message to the entire college system as we know it today? Let's dive right in and find out on today's episode of Altered Life. There's no need even to have a college degree at all, or even high school. Elon Musk. I recently watched him on video, and he was saying that, uh, you know, higher education has no value at all. You know, there's, why go to college? Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that's a very um, controversial uh, statement to make. Mm -hmm. And especially in light of our need for connection, this uh, community that we really need. We're, we're wired for that community and that connection. I think that's because the idea that we have about college, it's just not hitting the mark. Mm -hmm. That is what Hildegard is trying to change. What, what university professors by and large are trained to do is to reproduce versions of themselves, which is to say professional academics. We're now defaulting, and we're just mm -hmm. sort of turning over responsibility that was once in the area of family or community, and now we're putting that responsibility on educators too, mm. right? So we're asking, yeah. almost asking too much of them, this thing you're describing about apprenticeship, right? I mean, that that in of itself is an education. That is another form of, of human connection. Well, welcome to what is going to be a really exciting conversation. And uh, we have with us two special guests. We're talking about the power of human connection and how lives can intersect and cross paths and connect to elevate and transform. And uh, this world is in need of more powerful human connection that can bring about elevation and transformation. So to my right here, we have Dr. Matt Smith, who is the president, founder of Hildegard College. Matt, can you tell the audience uh, about yourself and your background, just a quick bio if you would. What would you like the, the sure. audience to know about you? Yeah, let's see. Uh, well, I'm delighted to be back here, by the way, on Altered Life. So thanks for having me and Nicole on. Um, I am an academic by training. So the whole conventional academic route, I studied literature and drama, especially of the medieval and early modern period. So this is uh, to kind of ground it, think of people like William Shakespeare, 
or Chaucer, John Milton. Um, and in my academic career, uh, experienced different sorts of changes of direction. One of them was towards more uh, cross-disciplinary work. So a lot of my research and writing and teaching has been across what academics call disciplines like literature and philosophy and religious studies and theology, some psychology, um, and even natural sciences and mathematics. Uh, and eventually, after teaching for about 10 years at um, kind of a mid-sized university, joined up with other people who had a different vision for college education and uh, put that vision into practice in founding a new college called Hildegard College here in Southern California um, that is an alternative model of college and that focuses very specifically on entrepreneurship and liberal arts. So now I am part of a team that runs the college and teaches our wonderful students and um, father of three, husband. I live in Orange County here in California and have most of my life. So that's a little snapshot of who I am. Thank you for that. And uh, I want to commend you for your vision and your inspiration to start Hildegard College. And uh, the the work you're doing is is so Well, thanks. Valuable. And you've uh, you've had kind of a front row seat to the journey. I have. Yep. It's exciting to have been like a observer and uh, and a supporter. So. Conversation partner. Yeah, for absolutely. sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And to our left, we have Nicole Parker, who's a fellow. Mm-hmm. at Hildegard College. And this is the first class, is it not, of Hildegard? Very first. And it's a huge class, isn't it? Yeah. How big is it? Whopping five students, oh, myself wow. included. <laughs> Small class. Yeah. Very intimate, right? Yeah. So, Nicole. Yes. What would you like the audience to know about you? Who are you? And give them an introduction to yourself. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'm currently a student at Hildegard Um, I'm a student for the first time in a while in my life, Um, and it feels really amazing to be a student at Hildegard specifically. I love people. I love learning. I love creating. Um, So I try to do that as much as I can just in my personal life with or without school, Um, but to be a part of a school that encourages that so much (laughs) and is very, you know, intimate, like you said, it's lovely. So just studying, living, laughing, love, and learning. <laughs> where are you from originally? <laughs> uh, I'm from Garden Grove, California. Okay. And I live there now still. Um, but right now I'm, you know, very heavily involved in the Costa Mesa scene for school and work and things like that. So, yeah, I love Southern California. It's really, That's I great. feel lucky to live here. <laughs> and all I can add to this, Nicole is also, um, Hildegard College hires students in different roles mm, to yeah. kind of be co-founders. Okay. Nicole is our social media manager. So if you look at Hildegard College's social media, you'll see Nicole's handiwork on there. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta say, I'm impressed. Silly reels oh, yeah. and uh, I don't know, day in the life of a Hildegard student. Yeah, yeah. Like that. Trying to get that YouTube channel up doing? and running. You're doing good work. It's excellent. <laughs> well, fabulous. So you're here today with me to talk about the power of human connection. And uh, the dynamic, the relationship here, I think we'll just distill it down to like teacher student, right? And, you know, what is it about that relationship that is so powerful? Uh, I, you know, I think myself, I think upon education and 
life. Life is a continuing uh, process of education and growth. And there's nothing that I know that I have taught myself. Mm. Everything that I know has been either written down in a book that I read by somebody else or communicated orally through someone who took the time to have a meaningful conversation with me. Or um, I was able to be mentored by somebody or I had a teacher, right? So mm-hmm. Matt, what do you think uh, about this thing of you know, yeah. human connection and education and as a professor, as a, as a teacher, you know, what, what do you think this is? I mean, I, I don't think I'm arguing, I don't think I'm disagreeing with what you just said. Um, there's nothing that you have learned that you have taught yourself, but I am, but I am disagreeing with it in, um, slightly in, and I'll refer to a, an author we read this last semester, Plato, who's, uh, is his own teacher Socrates is the main interlocutor conversation partner in the works that he writes. And one of the things that we learn from Plato's works and Socrates uh, is that what it really means, arguably, what it really means to learn something is uh, is a form of discovery. Mm-hmm. So maybe one adage to consider is the idea that you only um you can only learn for yourself. Nobody can learn for you. So you are right that a teacher brings things uh, to your attention. But what does it mean to learn it? That is for something to take root in you, not just intellectually, but in other ways. Whatever operation that is, it's something that only you can do for yourself. So this, I think, can prompt us to reflect on what it actually means to teach somebody Mm. is looks more like guiding somebody than it does um, telling them. I can tell you what I think you ought to believe about the world, and you can tell me back what I think you ought to believe about the world, but that doesn't mean that you've come to learn or that you know the things I'm telling you. All you know is that I think you ought to believe this. So there's this additional step that has to happen that is fundamentally relational uh, that I think defines what a teacher, not again, not just academically, but what a teacher is. And I think that we can use mentor, we can use guide. Um, I like the word teacher, but I think that it has, it has become populated with images of somebody standing in front of a class of students who are required to note down what they say and then rehearse it back to them. And I think that's a corrupted Mm. idea of what a Mm. teacher is. Mm. It's a really good point. I I love the point that you make about really coming to the place of understanding or knowledge. It's really inside of us, right? To let that take root and let that grow. The teacher, what's their role? in that like what is their their guide you talk about a guide and um how do you see that like what is that you know what does that mean to you because it is it it does Mm. take that teacher student you're you're right about the knowledge right the education is really we have to take we have to let it take root we have to ponder it we have to internalize it but what what does the teacher do in that role yeah there's certainly a curatorial elevation and uh, life life is a continuing uh, process of education and growth and 
There's nothing that I know that I have taught myself. Mm. Everything that I know has been either written down in a book that I read by somebody else or communicated orally through someone who took the time to have a meaningful conversation with me. Or um, I was able to be mentored by somebody or I had a teacher, right? So, mm-hmm. Matt, what do you think uh, about this thing of, you know, yeah. human connection and education and as a professor, as a, as a teacher, you know, what, what do you think this is? I mean, I, I don't think I'm arguing, I don't think I'm disagreeing with what you just said. Um, there's nothing that you have learned that you have taught yourself, but I am, but I am disagreeing with it in, um, slightly in, and I'll refer to a an author we read this last semester, Plato, who's uh, is his own teacher. Socrates is the main interlocutor, conversation partner, and the works that he writes. And one of the things that we learn from Plato's works and Socrates uh, is that what it really means, arguably, what it really means to learn something is uh, is a form of discovery. Mm-hmm. So maybe one adage to consider is the idea that you only um you can only learn for yourself nobody can learn for you so you are right that a teacher brings things uh, to your attention but what does it mean to learn it that is for something to take root in you not just intellectually but in other ways whatever operation that is it's something that only you can do for yourself so this i think can prompt us to reflect on what it actually means to teach somebody mm. is looks more like guiding somebody than it does um, telling them. I can tell you what I think you ought to believe about the world, and you can tell me back what I think you ought to believe about the world, but that doesn't mean that you've come to learn or that you know the things I'm telling you. All you know is that I think you ought to believe this. So there's this additional step that has to happen that is fundamentally relational uh, that I think defines what a teacher, not again, not just academically, but what a teacher is. And I think that we can use mentor, we can use guide. Um, I like the word teacher, but I think that it has, it has become populated with images of somebody standing in front of a class of students who are required to note down what they say and then rehearse it back to them. And I think that's a corrupted Mm. idea of what a Mm. teacher is. Mm. It's a really good point. I I love the point that you make about really coming to the place of understanding or knowledge. It's really inside of us, right? To let that take root and let that grow. The teacher, what's their role? in that like what is their their guide you talk about a guide and um how do you see that like what is that you know what does that mean to you because it is it it does Mm. take that teacher student you're you're right about the knowledge right the education is really we have to take we have to let it take root we have to ponder it we have to internalize it but what what does the teacher do in that role yeah there's certainly a curatorial element to a teacher's role, by which I mean uh, a teacher is selecting what material his or her students are considering. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
But that is only a small piece, I think, of what a teacher does. A good teacher can teach a number of subjects. And in fact, I would submit to anybody listening that if you found somebody who calls him or or herself a teacher, but is only willing to address certain subjects that are within their area of expertise, because expertise, I think, can blind us to what really drives the teaching and learning experience, which is relational. So if you think about what makes a good teacher, uh, you have to trust your teacher. That doesn't happen because you think they're super smart only. And uh, the, the, the image that comes to mind is of somebody leading somebody through experiences. And so we can, um, you can go very deep into this in ways thinking about the progression from uh, being introduced to an idea to wrestling with it. To go back to the example of Socrates, his way of teaching was what uh, his own student, Aristotle, would later call dialectic, which is just asking questions. So he would ask you a question like, what is virtue, right? Nicole, you remember this, what is virtue? And the answer might be, well, I mean, it's this for this person and this for this person and this for this person. He'd say, well, how can it be the same thing for every person? Can you answer this question, this this question? Eventually, the person he's speaking with, the person who's answering the question through that dialectic um, comes to strip their idea away of things that don't belong to it and then to discover something new that was somehow already in their understanding dormantly mm-hmm. that they didn't know. And what is that process? What does it take? Um, I, th- I think a, a particular attentiveness to people. You actually you have to know the people you're teaching. Yes. Hence having um, five students in our inaugural class mm-hmm. is a blessing for us because we we know, I mean, they can tell you, we know them all really well. Well, let's, let's talk about that from the student perspective. Yep. There is this relational aspect, this interplay, this back and forth. Mm-hmm. How do you, Nicole, experience that as a student, that relationship, that, that back and forth? What's, what's that relationship like? And why is it so meaningful to you? Why are you spending, you're literally dedicating a big portion of yeah. your life right now to yeah. this process? Uh-huh. So what is it about this process? Why is it so important to you? Um, well, this is a I feel so happy to jump into this specific conversation cuz in my life it feels I don't know why, but I feel uniquely blessed to have had such great teachers. Um in in high school, in work, after high school, right now. Um and they were teachers in the stereotypical sense like we think they stood in front of a classroom. Um, you know, they lectured, they, they taught us, you know, proper ways to read books and things like that. But some of the magic moments that I've had with them happen, not even inside the classroom, but, you know, office hours, mm. conversations over the phone. Um, and I think the reason for that is it is human connection. It's one-on-one, you know, they're looking at you in the eyes the entire time when they're talking, like you're the only Sorry. person, you know, in the world. Um, but at the same time, learning with a community, you know, with our little cohort is a magic moment within itself because, you know, we get to bounce ideas off of each other. Um, and it feels very natural, like a conversation, you know, uh, even with the professors and the doctors, you know, they have the title professor or doctor, you know, they're professional, but it feels like we're having a conversation with just a genuine friend. Like I feel genuine friendship from Dr. Smith. You know, we drove up, uh, 
from Costa Mesa here to Dana Point. We were talking just, you know, about life, you know, nothing particularly academic, but I think that's a big, uh, a big uh, effect on how you learn is when you feel that magic moment or that connection. So it's I, a feeling. It, I think so. Yeah. Under care. underneath the conversation, I yeah. think it is a feeling or a, yeah. a vibe or whatever you want to call it. So <laughs> you guys may know. You guys may know. Um, I know Matt. You probably know. We have been involved in some research projects and really looking at the science behind human connection and the relationship, the rapport. Uh, what does it take to to foster that connection and foster that? Um, you know, that, that relationship in such a way that it brings about elevation, right? Mm -hmm. Growth. And you mentioned one of the things that is a, is a domain, is an actual attribute that uh, must be found in that help giver, that teacher, that therapist, that pastor, that, that help giver must be that uh, element of trust. Mm -hmm. They have to be trustworthy. And uh, listening to Nicole and talking about the drive down here, I mean, she has enough trust in you to like just open up, be yourself. Mm -hmm. She trusts you. How, how did you foster that? How do you, how do you intentionally go about doing that? Is it just innate, or did you have to work on it? I mean, how do you do that? I don't know that. Um, no, it's not innate. Nor, nor would I say that I'm, uh, would I claim to be particularly good at connecting with people, but. I will say that um, I'll use your, I'll use the work that you all do as an example. This idea of a therapeutic alliance. Yeah. Uh, when we when we dug into what is really making the help seeker, seeker and provider um, relationship thrive, wh where do we actually see outcomes for the help seeker? Uh, it was not based in expert. It's the same stuff I was saying. Not based in expertise necessarily or years of experience or the particular kind of methodology you're employing, but rather in the connection between the two people that's technically called the therapeutic alliance. And that's no surprise. I mean, that's wasn't surprising to me when, when we uncovered that, uh, partly because, of course, when people get along and connect with each other, change is more facile, but also because being... Um, being a friend to somebody or being available to somebody or being trustworthy for somebody is not innate. It's a learned thing. So the best uh, teachers, just like the best counselors, peer counselors or therapists, take that part of their job especially seriously where they're they're well-trained in connecting to people. And that is the, couldn't be the furthest away from being superficial. It's It's not faking it. It's uh, it's it's not fakeable. Mm -hmm. You have to genuinely be interested in people. And if I can, if I were to sing the praise of any quality that my faculty at Hildegard have, it's that they just as much as they are invested in the ideas and the great works that we're reading and the um the questions we're asking, they're authentically interested in and curious about the students because that's the site of learning and transformation, not the book. We don't owe anything to Dante or Augustine or Aristotle or Shakespeare. We don't owe them anything, right? But we do owe something to each other. That's mm -hmm. beautiful. It, you uh, you really can't fake authenticity. You can try. You can try. But yeah. you really can't but fake But people are trained these days, especially 
but are you gen are you gen z unfortunately yeah especially <laughs> especially gen z people see through fake attempts at authenticity so absolutely. quickly absolutely it, it's like uh cilia it's like a radar cilia yeah, yeah. it's just uh it's a it's an innate gift it's something that i think that the, the this generation has grown up with why is that why do you think that is nicole i think i know a big thing that affects our generation in every aspect of how we go about life is technology Mm. You know, the iPhone, social yeah. media. Mm. We have so much entering our brain at all times. Mm. So we're just exposed to anything you could think of. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, you your psyche has to pick up uh, so many things that it probably just, you know, notices what's more real and what's not. It's very interesting. Exposure. Mm. I don't know. I, I've been um, saying quite often, this uh, world of hyper connectivity has created this reality of hyper isolation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah. So why, you know, why is that? You, you know, you've grow up. You're growing up with, you know, almost the electronics are almost integrated into your being now. Where that wasn't the yeah. case when I grew up. So it's much different. But it, has it really helped? I mean, what do you think? Um, at its best, I think it 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 does have the power to connect people mm -hmm. but i think it connects people to a point so you can you know make a connection online but i think that connection online leads you to the individual you know yeah. it's just a tool yeah. um to the real core of the thing yeah uh but at its worst it's it is so isolating yeah i want to argue that uh the um counterfeit uh, you know, this is this this connection is a counterfeit version of the authentic mm -hmm. version yeah. of of connection, and so you really can't fake. Yeah, it's like uh, almost. You can't fake that, yeah, you it's know? almost the thing, but it's it not. it's you you can feel that it's not. Yeah, it's not the real thing, yeah. and I think that's so frustrating because it's like, oh, it's it's yeah. almost there, but it's not. And and I think that an an incomplete something mm. like an incomplete form of connection, we might call. A connection over social media, for instance, or some sure. kind of digital medium, yeah. incomplete or partial, can also be um, – it can deceive us into mm -hmm. thinking it's the real thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So to give a kind of – I'm going to make myself sound like a curmudgeonly professor here. But <laughs> uh, years, years ago, I was, I was surprised that I would get emails from students. I wouldn't give out my phone number. Um, and I was, I was teaching at a bigger you know, university and had a few, you know, a few hundred students sometimes, depending on the classes I was teaching. I, would give a, I wouldn't give out my phone number, but I would get an email, and the email would have no, no greeting, mm. no salutation, no capitalization, <laughs> um, the letter U instead of the word U. Mm. And uh, obviously, I realized what was happening. This is. I had to surrender to that. By the way, that was a whole process for me. We'll yeah, this is. Time, but, but you. But which is. Um, I understand. There's no as, as a as a professor, of course. I mean, when I was a, a student or a graduate student, if I would uh, uh, write an email to one of my professors, I mean, I would I would obsess over it. I would spend ten minutes oh, yeah. just composing it and rewriting it. And still today, that matters to people. And it matters to anybody that you might be supervised by in whatever context. Um, so I understand that's not the intention. There's no, there's no ill intention behind that. But uh, 
nonetheless, it's reflecting less connection, right? If we if we set the bar for the formality, in this instance, the formality is the thing we're talking about of communication down here, what we're going to end up with is a kind of connection that's even lower than that. If we mm-hmm. set it up here, we're going to end up end up with a connection yeah. here, which is, that's I think, yeah. the role of sort of formalized relationships are not inauthentic. And I, at least in my, I'm a kind of, um, I'm on the older end of millennials age-wise. And we were kind of, I think, acculturated to think of anything formal or structured being inauthentic. Mm. And uh, at least I have learned, I think many others have that, no, in fact, structures, forms, liturgies, if you want, can assist you in ways uh, where where true connection or true relationship or even friendship or love is hard. It's hard to find. It's hard to establish. Well, we have these instruments that are out there. For instance, punctuation, <laughs> right? Or on a far end, a methodology or um, some kind of medium, like a book that you're reading together. It could be anything that help us, I think, connect with each other better than we would if we were just left to our own devices. And I would say that's probably more true of the current kind of coming of age generations than it has before. Mm-hmm. Although grammar and language has been fluid throughout throughout the. All of time, right? Yeah, like so you, it can yeah, change, it right? Can change. Because so, someone uses yeah. the letter U instead of you, it doesn't mean they yeah. disrespect you at all, right? You have to understand that. But language also has meaning. So, that's right. mm-hmm. you know, if 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 I grew up using the word "cool" to mean um, admirable and commendable and good and ev- all all sorts of other words that had the capacity to express something else, and yet we conflate these or kind of compact these all into one word, we're actually losing not just linguistic meaning, but the meaning of life. We're yeah. losing the ability to comprehend other sorts of goodness. That's true. Mm. And language is part of connection, isn't it? Right. Isn't it? Yeah. Communication, you know. I think um, you know, this conversation is so on topic about what this podcast is all about. I want to I want to pose um, a question, something I've heard recently to you as a student, Nicole, and uh, Elon Musk. I recently recently watched him on video. He was on stage somewhere, you know, fairly large uh, event, mm-hmm. and he was saying that uh, you know higher education has no value at all. You know, there's why go to college? Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's a very um, controversial uh, statement to make, mm-hmm. and especially in light of our need for connection, this uh, community that we really need. We're, we're wired for that community and that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that statement? You know, what, what, what do you think about somebody as uh, prominent as Elon Musk in this world yeah. today and his mindset and what he represents in the world yeah. saying something like that? I think if you asked me six months ago, I would be like, oh, yeah, I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. But I think that's because the idea that we have about college, um, like modern day education, it, it's just not hitting the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and people go now, I think, for, you know, not the college itself, but the experience they have with people and stuff like that. Um, and I think that is what Hildegard is trying to change, you know, because it's, when I tell people, oh, I go to Hildegard College and I explain what we do, it's it's not, it doesn't sound like a college, you know? Mm-hmm. It's kind of a different 
you almost need a different word for it. But I think it's what should be the definition for college. So, yeah, I mean, I totally would have agreed with Elon Musk a year ago. And today? And today I would, I would say higher education is not what it should be. Mm-hmm. And um, higher education is really valuable if it is, you know, what it should be. So. Wonderfully said. Yeah. So hmm. the precepts, the the model of Hildegard, is this is this new? Are you innovating? Or are you going back to what was old and what was hmm. tried and true? What is this about? Like, what are you doing? What? How, it's, it's, how, it, how like how audacious of you to do something like this? What is it? What, who do you think you are? It's <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, you know, Nicole. You, um, I could see as as Michael's asking, well, okay, so that's what you thought six months ago. What do mm-hmm. you think now? And mm-hmm. I could th- I could see the the complexity of the question registering in your mind as mm-hmm. he's asking that. Uh, and, and part of what strikes me as I did not hear Elon Musk say that, but it doesn't surprise me. I should just say maybe 90% of me agrees with him, mm-hmm. by the way. But mm-hmm. uh, partly because he's using this term higher education. So what does that refer to? That refers to education after a bachelor's degree. Uh, sorry, after a high school degree. That's after right. a high school after degree. High school. And it has not always been the case that there has been a category for education that is that, that that lumps all forms of post-grammar school or post-secondary school education together into one thing called higher education. So, for example, there have been times where um, you study this or that, and then you go, after you have a foundational education, you go and do, uh, uh, you, you, you want to learn how to, um, how to be a, a surgeon. Surgeons at one point were not, you know, medical doctors, but were this is this is in the weeds. They were called barber surgeons. People oh, that yeah, cut yeah, people's yeah. hair. Yeah, you know about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also cut like bloodletting and stuff like that. Yeah, bloodletting <laughs> yeah. with leeches and weird things yeah. like that. Uh, you would go. You would go live with and study with some barber surgeon. Or if you wanted to learn how to make bridles for horses, you would go live with a bridal maker. If you wanted to learn, for that matter, how to pray, you would go to a monastery where people spend their time praying and learn how to do it with them. We don't call those higher education. Somehow we we think of those mm. as um as more formational. Higher education has this kind of abstract thought we send people away and they go study in these schools yeah. and we just entrust the schools to do a whole bunch of things at this critical coming of age moment, kind of rite of passage in people's lives. Um I have a whole thought about that though too. Sometimes it feels like we're we're now defaulting and we're just mm-hmm. sort of turning over responsibility that was once in the area of family or community. And now we're putting that responsibility on educators too, mm. right? We're asking, yeah. almost asking too much of them, this thing you're describing about apprenticeship, right? I mean, that that in of itself is an education. That is another form of of human connection. And, and in the academy, in colleges and universities, we were just talking about this about an hour ago, but mm-hmm. uh, the the sorts of what what university professors by and large are trained to do is to reproduce versions of themselves, which is to say professional academics. So as someone's coming into your Western civilization history class as a professor, or coming into your intro to psychology class, or coming into your 
literature class, you know, my Shakespeare class or something, what most how most faculty approach it, and therefore how the how the course is designed, is to create a mini version of a future professional psychologist or historian or Shakespeare scholar, and uh, when you put it that way, you think, well, this is very that's very weird. These students, almost none of them are going to become any of those things. And uh, more than that, do we entrust those particular ways of teaching of those subjects with the kinds of personal formation that is good for people at the 18 to 25 or so year old age range? Uh, So you could think of another way to describe what I was saying is the kind of professionalization of higher education has really left i mean it's, the education is still in the in the phrase higher education but um sometimes it's difficult to see and if you ask there there are simple questions you can ask uh university professors or admissions counselors that i think will reveal really how a field the question of learning is from how the institutions are formed and designed what will I learn at your school? That question can't be answered by 99% of the universities and colleges that exist, Mm -hmm. the institutions of higher education. The answer would be like, well, I guess that totally depends Mm -hmm. on what you study and who you take classes with and what kind of person you are and Mm -hmm. who you hang out with and things like that. Or what is the something like another question, like what is the end or purpose of education? Uh, Totally depends and probably has more to do with trying to meet enrollment quotas than it does the, the person that you're teaching. Yeah. yeah, true, true. What do you think as a student mm-hmm. uh, is the main objective of getting an education? Why do you oh, think good that? good one. Mm. What do you think that's all about? What's your goal? What are you trying to achieve from that? Um, well, we talk in our entrepreneurship class, we have this diagram of a pyramid um, and it is like the learning pyramid or whatever. And at the top, um, you know, the highest form of learning is creation. You know, you learn something so well that you're able to spin it in your own way and use everything that you've learned to like output something into the world. Mm -hmm. You know, you're learning your input, 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 and then finally you're able to, you know, make something. And hopefully it's a good and beautiful and positive thing that other people can benefit from. Um, So, you know, it's like a I think I think creation is well. Best. So you, you're you're taking me back to a dinner we had not too long ago. Yeah, and uh, man, search for meaning. Great how, book. So how does that tie into what you just said? Because I think there's it's sort of interconnected, right? Your purpose, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. how, how does that how does that tie in? Um. Well, Viktor Frankl, he learned through experience mm-hmm. and a horrible, horrible experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was able to take that and it's like alchemy. He changed it and, and he, he, he outputted something so, I mean, what, like 16 million copies have sold? Like he has helped so many people mm-hmm. through the creation of his book and his lectures and, you know, it, you know, his one-on-ones with students. I think at the, the back of the book, you know, the postscript, um, he, you know, he helps people find meaning. So one of his students asked him, well, what's your purpose? What's your meaning? He's like, to help people find their meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, he learned the hard way, you know, kind of what life is about, mm-hmm. but he was able to 
That's kind of what, what you're, the journey you're on right now. But I mean, right. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> it, and it shows. Yeah. <laughs> I, I gotta, I gotta stop. And, and if I could just take a snapshot of Nicole for you right now, if you were seeing what I just saw, how blessed are you? How oh, fortunate please. are you to be able to pour into a human being? Like this, and, and the rest of your students. I mean, the, uh, what is that like? Yeah, you know, the our, that is so cool. Our students and Nicole was one of the first that signed up for an, our inaugural class, and I can remember talking with you at the interview stage. We interview <laughs> every one of our applicants, um, and Nicole, I think, represents the group uh, in in that. One thing that attracted her to Hildegard College is that it's iconoclastic and it's brand new and it's doing things differently. It's require. I mean, it's a very demanding school. We're yeah. in class. I'm not lecturing. Other faculty aren't lecturing. We're having a conversation. There are five of you right now and there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. Right. So somebody that enters into this sort of learning environment is doing it voluntarily. And so you're choosing to do it. And it's a... It's completely requisite for a liberal education, but which I mean an education for freedom, liberal as in liberating or freeing, mm -hmm. what we what used to be known as liberal arts education. It's it's required that you enter into it voluntarily, mm -hmm. that you continually commit yourself and uh, commit yourself to it and wish for it. In this way, it's akin to something like religious faith, where religious faith is not just a kind of an, a cognitive assent to propositions, but is a is a form of commitment. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what I mean. This is when we think of faithful. It's commitment. Um, and so the snapshot of Nicole and her peers at Hildegard, the undergraduate class, is of people who are remarkable in their willingness to do something different and to learn, not to be anonymous, but mm -hmm. for that yeah. matter, to be known. You can't hide. Yeah. I mean, when I was in college, uh, I was a fairly good student, but of course I would have these off weeks sure, where yeah. I'm like, oh, life is catching up to me. I'm going to phone it in this week. Yeah. I'm going to not come to class or if I do, I'm just going to like space out and I could totally do that. Uh, you guys can't do that. No. Right. So what happens if that happens, if it's something like, like that happens <laughs> is, you know, we're pulling you aside and be like, hey, is everything okay? Can yeah. I help you yes. with something? Can yes. we set a goal? things like that. Uh, yeah. Um so it's this it's this power of volition. This is the human faculty of willing something that I think is driving the education for these students. It's not something that we as faculty create for them or can. But it's an opportunity that we're giving them that they're choosing and sort of continually willing that. I, I think that's it. I think that's yeah. what I just saw in you as the power the uh, this this energy about your willingness to bring about growth and change, desire mm -hmm. the desire to have this growth and elevation mm -hmm. in your life, mm -hmm. and, and uh, the willingness and the excitement about it, right? And that's even in behavioral healthcare, like that's that's cool because people are looking to you know go from desperation to hope oh yeah mm -hmm. from bondage to freedom right yeah. mm -hmm. uh and in a way that's kind of what the student um is looking for yeah. as well would you agree yeah i mean you probably know better than anyone you can't really help someone if they're not if they don't want to bingo yeah that's right same thing with the student that's it's, right. it's not gonna student's not gonna learn if they don't want to that's right or you know it'll they'll learn it'll go 
one of your other. They'll think that they're learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they'll mistake that for learning. Uh huh. And then you'll get institutions that entirely mistake that for learning, (laughs) right? Then you get a whole world. (laughs) Or you, for that matter, can get healthcare providers that mistake that for transformation. And this is, I think, where you and I, Michael, connected years ago over the, especially the, the congruence of um, effective, transformative behavioral health care that's right. and liberal Science arts education. Yeah, that's right? right. Liberal arts education, this idea of being freed. That's right. Both of them are for freedom. Freedom of what? Well, freedom of your will to make a positive decision. That's right. Um, we at, at, at Hildegard, I'll, I'll forbear quizzing Nicole on this. Yeah. Or we have a, do you, well, maybe. No, I'll don't ask on. me the motto that's in Latin, please. <laughs> I don't remember. Do you know the English version? To seek, seek to, love. to love, to create. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, querere, Latin for to seek. <laughs> she is making the cut sound. We're not going to cut this part. To seek, querere, to seek, amare, to love, edificare, to build or create. Um, this is our motto because you seek what it is that's good, true, and worthy of your time and sacrifice by studying the great works of Western civilization. Yeah. Secondly, amare, it's not enough to know what's good and worthy of your sacrifice. You have to love it mm-hmm. so that you make that decision. And then finally, at Ficare, to create, you have to, uh, you, you need the tools that, uh, to, to actually build something and change your life, the, the technical knowledge, if you will. This could be to seek to love, to create, could well be, um, you know, the motto of a behavioral healthcare organization, yes. for instance. It's the same, it's the same process because yes. we're not obsessing or fixating on, the content, what's the instrument? We're not putting the cart before the horse, but we're thinking about connection. Yes. And that transition from learning to coming to love something enough to make a change. Yes. That yeah. I think we share. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just loved the exchange that I just saw between the two of you two. <laughs> You're modeling this thing of human connection. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh teacher, student, what this is supposed to be. It is that connection. It's that it's that back and forth. I yeah. Think, you know, you can't you can't put too much burden on one side of the relationship. I think we have to be equal in that approach if we're going to have that relationship, right? It takes two. It takes maybe more than two, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Well, something that I wanted to bring up because I think it uh, captured it so perfectly what the school is about, kind of on the academic front, but also just the relationship front. Um, It was probably orientation week. The school hadn't even started yet. And we were kind of going over the the book list and oh my gosh, you know, so many books so fast. <laughs> Overwhelming. Uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, Dr. Smith uh, said, you know, this school is high expectation, high support. Beautiful. And I think even, you know, like therapist, client, high yes. expectation, you know, you have to work and that's right. But high support, I will help you through this. That's right. And so, I mean, that's been the case. I mean, I've had like phone calls breaking down to doctors like, oh, I'm gonna do this. And it's like, <laughs> no, let's, let's, you know, we'll work through it. And so even this semester, I can notice it. Like we're changing how we're doing things based on what the students maybe need or uh, need support in. And it's, I mean, it's running like a well-oiled machine even I'm gonna, now. I'm going to ask you a question that is, uh, I think, a really important one. Maybe the most important question that I've asked so far. Mm -hmm. There's a whole generation that is, you know, starved or lacking this human connection. Yep. And speaking to your peers, speaking to those that may even, that are younger than you, 
Mm-hmm. If you had that one thing, if you had something to say to them to encourage them toward this connection that's so critical, right? It's been so beneficial. Yep. What, what would you tell them to inspire them to get them um, to open up and, and I think forward? I would remind them and encourage just anyone. Uh, you have control over your own life. So if you feel that something's off, you know, you're starved for connection. You know, you want to be around people that, you know, share your values or, you know, you're seeking something. You are not doomed to live a life that you don't want to live. You know, you can take the reins, you can seek, you can love, and you can create. There's nothing really stopping you if you want to do it. Or maybe there are things that will stop you, but momentarily, and you can push forward despite the things that are stopping you. Um, so if you feel something's off in your life, in yourself, with the people around you, like you can change that. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Dr. Smith, for those who are trying to endure and maybe are doing some soul searching about, do I, can I continue on in this process of trying to help others, educate others, be that help giver? Hmm. You know, what, what would you tell them? Because it, uh, you don't win every time. You're not successful every time in that endeavor and that attempt. But how could you provide them some encouragement so that they continue to go forward in this really important work? Yeah, I think that's a very big and an important question. One that um, I can only generalize about, but g- generally speaking, Speaking from my own experience, from the experience of students and friends I've had, one of the things that I've learned is that people change when they love what they're doing. And I would apply that fairly universally. And that's no surprise, right? That, that we should expect that to be the case. Uh, you can't, um, you can't stop a, 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 an insidious habit because somebody is telling you, stop it, it's bad for you, it's bad for you, stop it, stop it, right? You have to love something more, right? You have to love something more. Um, And I believe that people know uh, both intuitively and intellectually what things are worthy of their love. Mm. Uh, They might not always feel affection, Notice I'm using a different word there, but not always feeling affection or desiring those things that they know are worthy of their love. But uh, here's the thing about things that we know are worthy of our love is that they are objectively lovable things, meaning that they're good things or they're beautiful things. An example would be another person, right? You want to change a habit or a, a pattern of behavior for the sake of, let's say, a child. That person is objectively worthy of love. That means you can trust that taking some kind of action for the sake of that person is going to bear fruit for you, not just for them, but for you no matter what, no matter what. I don't know why. I don't feel like doing this. I don't want to do it, but I can see the beauty and the goodness of that child. I'm going to act on their behalf. And the nature of love is liberating. It's freeing. So it's going to, it's going to break those bonds. Um, that analogy could be applied to a college classroom. It could be applied to a help seeker. It could be applied to just a relationship that needs work, to someone's stress at work. Um, Thank you for that encouragement. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really great encouragement. What is your hope? What do you, what do you hope? What do you hope for? What do you hope for Hildegard? What do you hope for in your life? What do you, what is your, you know, what is your dream? What's your BHAG? You know what a BHAG yeah. is? Oh, are you, can you say that word again? BHAG. Are you saying BHAG? BHAG. It's a can big, you spell it? big, hairy, audacious goal. Spell the word. It's a, it's a saying. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's an, an acronym. acronym. Or B-hag, initialism. Yeah. BHAG. Yeah, B-hag. Big, hairy, audacious, audacious goal. goal. What's your big, I love that. <laughs> what's your big, hairy, audacious Well, goal? I'm going to answer that question if you'll answer it after I do. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my, my big, ha- my BHAG mm-hmm. is for a community of people that I can be happy with, is for a flourishing community that's striving after the same thing that's worthy of our love. And in my life, I've made the decision to find that community in an integration of family, friendship, and and work. So with my students, with my colleagues, we really do think of ourselves as practitioners of the thing that we're doing. Like the blacksmith who takes on an apprentice. As we're reading, as we're reading these great authors, our curriculum works through the greatest works of civilization from antiquity to the present. As we're reading these and discussing them, it's not an academic exercise. It's because we're seeking it ourselves and we embrace the idea of being as professors, amateurs, that is ama, love, chores, lovers of learning mm-hmm. alongside our students. Um, and I, that might sound cliche, but it's not. It really is. I wouldn't be doing this if it weren't um, for love of the thing that actually drives change, which is relationship. I don't want to, I'm not going to just read through the great works of the world by myself. That doesn't really work. Some people, maybe that works for them, but not not for me. So my BHAG, my BHAG is to continue as for my part, contributing to um, a, a community that's seeking the good life. And my hope is that uh, people will find opportunity to contribute to to it themselves right because this is this is the most gratifying thing in the, in the truest sense of the word is when your gift is met with with something reciprocal mm. that's awesome mm. i'm all about your bhag but now you but now <laughs> but now i know you want to ask nicole but now i want to know your bhag mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so does she yeah my bhag is to relieve suffering mm. and to foster human connection that's it mm. to foster human connection yeah relieve suffering and foster human connection there's just so much suffering in the world and uh how how can we go about helping to relieve that suffering and do it in a really effective way not you know not a uh, not not in an ineffective way a more scientific way you know more more responsible way and uh this this podcast is actually Really in line with we're behagging right now. Yeah, that's what we're. (laughs) I'm part of your behag. You are are now in the behag. You just didn't realize we're in the hive. (laughs) Here it is. What's yours, Nicole? What is your like? What do you hope for? What's your behag? Um, I would love to find my ikigai. You know, Mm. and more specifically, I don't know what that means. Yeah, explain that. Uh, It's it's you know what you love, what you're good at what the world needs, what you're passionate about. Mm. But more specifically, mm. I want to address what the world needs and take what I love and uh, help people. Like, I think that you're doing that, you know? Mm-hmm. You're doing what you love and what you're really good at. Mm-hmm. And the secret ingredient to that is you're helping so many people. Mm-hmm. I can see it. Like when we walked into your office, you know, 
it was your office. You created this, this space, this lovely environment where you're helping people and you're glowing because of it. Mm -hmm. I want that in my life. I want to do something like that. And it will be so. It will be so. Mm -hmm. I see it already. You know, what I'm excited about is uh, this conversation is just, there's just so much that has come forward. And uh, Professor Smith, Dr. Smith here is the teacher, but he just asked you about what Ikigai was and you just taught him. <laughs> <laughs> so it is, you know, this is a mutual thing, right? It's so incredible. Like you just, you get something from this relationship. You get something. You're not just giving, right? You're both receiving as mm -hmm. well, isn't it? It's kind of like it. It it just belies like our understanding, doesn't it? Yeah. What it do you does. think about that? Well, I just want to note: I did not mean to name drop Ikigai. I thought we had mentioned it earlier in the interview. We did. That was we during did. the pre-interviews. I still <laughs> didn't know what it meant. I know it looked we talked about it earlier. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think everyone is a teacher. Uh, maybe not a professional, they don't have a degree, but everyone has such unique experiences in their life. Of course, you're going to, you know, teach others, maybe not intentionally, but they'll learn from you. Mm -hmm. um, so I think everyone's a teacher. Mm -hmm. hmm. What do you say about that? I, I'm, I can't remember his name. I heard a philosopher, um, a, a living philosopher comment a number of years ago on intellectual virtues, which he defined as virtues that you exercise or practice uh, through the intellectual pursuit of truth. And so I think about this, you know, as we're sitting around our, our classrooms to paint the picture for you, we're sitting around a, a table, not too much bigger than this. We have the same book cracked open. There's not a bunch of references and things around. Um, we all have our notes we've taken. And then I or a student asks a question of the book. Why does so-and-so author describe this this way? Why? And uh, if I'm asking the question, it's probably because I really have that question, not because there's a very specific answer. Sometimes I have some idea, but specific answer that I'm trying to pretend to have a conversation to lead them toward, mm. but because I'm really asking it. Mm. Um, that's that's what our, our our classes look like and 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 to do that well requires the exercise of virtue but by which i mean um to take the obvious one humility right if you're going to learn as you know the the statement attributed to socrates ignorance is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge but for sure you have to admit that you don't know it all in order to learn. If you don't, you're not going to. And we can all think of times in our lives where we or people we've encountered simply won't learn because they they believe or at least want to believe that they already know. No one really, really thinks they already know. And so having that humility, again, it's trained. And the theory is that you can only, perhaps, I'm just going to throw this out as a hypothesis, you can only um, learn about that virtue, that good, call it justice or humility or love, if your pursuit of that thing, of knowing about it, is itself done in justice and love and humility. That's the hypothesis that I submit without any evidence or conclusion. <laughs> is that true, right? If you're trying to teach somebody about humility, or if you're trying to learn humility yourself, can you learn about it, learn what it is without exercising humility in your pursuit of it? 
Can you learn about justice if we're studying justice and yet I am um, I am committing uh, interpersonal atrocities all across my <laughs> life? Uh, I- am I capable of recognizing justice when I see it? That's the question, right? Well, you're bringing up a really important point, uh, point about it, it ties into human connection. Uh, I have a hypothesis that the uh, the erosion of virtues has caused this increase uh, disconnection. People are don't want to connect anymore because there's this toxicity. There's mm. there's mm. a no there's no longer any morals, and people are afraid to connect. Fear. What will happen? Fear. Yeah. And so, you know, you started talking about virtues. I'm like, yes, this is great because uh, I think you know virtues are not really thought of very much anymore. And as a young person, like when you hear, hmm. you know, Dr. Smith start talking about virtues, you know, <laughs> that, what does that so mean? What is you? that word? I've never heard that before. <laughs> 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 uh, it, it's, it's hopeful um, because, you know, you know, it exists and, you know, you can, you know, practice it. Um, Cause I don't think I know I, no one wants to be bad. It doesn't feel good. You know, maybe there are exceptions and, you know, I don't know, but I, I, it's something we should love and practice. Um, so being exposed to it so heavily at a school like Hildegard, where we, you know, learn about virtue from the great thinkers of the past, um, you know, they're from the past, they're ancient, but it still applies today because it is, it is like in us. And, um, yeah, I think it should be, I think it's, I'm glad we learned it in the beginning, you know, the first semester, because I think we can carry it um, throughout yeah. all the four years and then life, you know. Why Why do you think there's been an erosion of virtues? I'm missing something, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we've missing a lot. We've lost our way. Yep. Yeah. I think there's a, I think one, there's many reasons. One of them is that socially, culturally, we've rejected the idea that there is such a thing as a human nature. Mm-hmm. Mm. And Aristotle says that the um, the goodness of something or the virtue of it is what it is naturally in its completed or perfected form. So the virtue of a human is not defined, for instance, by the behavior of a really good two-year-old, but rather defined by the behavior of a an adult mm-hmm. who has the experience and the capacities of a human in the fullest form. Uh, similarly, the virtue of a home is not capable by a partially built house or a partially furnished house or an uninhabited house, but rather by one that's complete and furnished and inhabited by people. So if we've lost sight or if we've just rejected the idea that there is such a thing as human nature that exists, we have uh, we've sabotaged our efforts to act with virtue. We've sabotaged our, our, our efforts to take advantage of the kind of cognitive behavioral tools that are out there to um, use our behaviors to shape our minds and to form our hearts. If we reject the idea that there's a human nature, we're projecting any vision of the perfect thing. And you know, uh, uh, Nicole, as you put it, it's already in us. Right? This, is a, this is a classical idea about virtue that you're representing. It's already in us. Mm-hmm. And as far as not not some weird ghostly notion that exists in our minds or our souls, but it's in us by virtue of the thing that we are. Mm, mm-hmm. As humans, we are potentially virtuous. 
our nature is yeah. to be virtuous. We're or- oriented toward or kind of ordered toward, we tend towards those things, those behaviors in which we'll find a flourishing and a happiness. Mm-hmm. So why why have we lost our way in that regard? Um, I think it begins with cultural forces that simply reject insidious, vicious ones that reject the idea out of often out of good intentions, out of the intentions mm-hmm. to be affirming or kind or to be sensitive. Um, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't need to reject the idea that there is such a thing as human nature. Mm. I I would um yeah, I would also say that this thing of human connection in of itself is virtuous if done with the right intentions, right? Like it takes a certain amount of humility. You have to be others oriented, mm-hmm. sacrificial in your approach. And that's novel. That's contrary. Yeah. <laughs> it contrary action. I think somebody, Dr. Smith, you talked about that earlier, but I think that human connection does take contrary action. I think it does require contrary action because altruism. Yeah, we just don't care. You know, we just don't feel like it, right? I don't, yeah, <laughs> I want to just be in my bed today yeah. and just cuddle up, you know, and and have my own little space. Now, sometimes yeah. that's good, but too much of that is not good. But I wanted to thank you both for joining me in just what has been an amazing conversation. I hope it's exceeded your expectations because it has mine. In closing. Um, what would you like to tell the audience about, you know, human connection and a thought? Um, I would say it's important. It's an important thing to seek out. And uh, I wouldn't underestimate how quickly it can change your life. I don't think it takes a lot um, to understand how important that is and how much it could change your life. You know, you could have one conversation with someone you really love and who really loves you and it can completely change course your life. So that is so true. Dr. Smith. Yeah. You know, maybe I'll just offer a reflection for 